The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is award-winning journalist and science writer Catherine Price. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Popular Science, The Washington Post, Outside Magazine, and Best American Science Writing, among many others. A graduate of Yale University and UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism, Catherine Price's previous books include 101 Places Not to See Before You Die and The Big Sur Bakery Cookbook. Catherine Price is here today on Health Watch to talk about her latest book, Vitamania, Our Obsessive Quest for Nutritional Perfection. Welcome to Health Watch, Catherine Price. Thanks for having me. So, Catherine, why don't we start out with uh, the story of how you came to be interested in writing this book? And uh, I know it had a little bit to do with your own uh, issues around health. Right. So a couple of years ago... Um I mean, basically what you're referring to is, yeah, when I was 22, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease that requires me to to pay attention to my food in great detail, in particular carbohydrates in the food because it affects your blood sugar. And so one day when my husband asked me kind of out of the blue, what's a vitamin? I don't know where he got that question, but he asked me what a vitamin was, and I tried to answer him, and I realized I didn't really have a good answer for him. And I just thought it was so strange because I've written about health and food for a while now, and I think about food all the time because of type 1 diabetes, and I didn't have an answer to this seemingly simple question. So I thought it would be interesting to look into that question and write a book about it. So why don't you tell us what a vitamin is, and then from there we can talk about even though the people even though people can define what a vitamin is, how little we actually know about what vitamins do. Sure. Well, the first thing I would say is just to clarify something that was muddied in my own mind is that the word vitamin and the word dietary supplement don't mean the same thing. So there's actually only 13 human vitamins. Uh, That's the A, C, D, E, K, and then the eight B vitamins that go by names like thiamine and riboflavin and niacin. And those, roughly speaking, are chemicals that we need to get in very small amounts, usually from our diet, to prevent a specific deficiency. So like vitamin C prevents scurvy, for example. Dietary supplements, on the other hand, refers to a much broader category of um, products, including vitamins, but it's something like 85,000 different products on sale in the United States. So that includes everything from herbals and botanicals to bodybuilding powders, um, ground-up glands, like all sorts of stuff. Everything you could see in a GNC would be a dietary supplement. So when we're looking at vitamins, one of the interesting parts about Vitamania was you looking back at some of these diseases before uh, we were fortifying our foods. And, you know, things like scurvy were actually huge problems, like huge uh, amounts of mortality were happening from scurvy and other diseases that we now don't see partially because of of fortifi- fortification. So can you talk a little bit about what what it was like pre 20th century with some of these conditions? Yeah, it's easy for us to forget how horrible a lot of these diseases are um, and also to not be aware of how they still exist today in places that don't have as easy access to vitamins as we do. But scurvy, um, again, which is a vitamin C deficiency, it became a problem when people began to be able to take ships uh, for months at a time off the coast 
and so basically eat food that didn't contain any vitamin C, like basically old biscuits and stuff. Um, it's a horrendous disease in which your body can't make collagen, which is a, a protein in your body that basically holds us together, and you need vitamin C to make collagen. So if you don't have vitamin C and you're not making collagen, your body kind of starts to fall apart from within, and... Uh, and it kills you. I mean, it's really horrible. <laughs> and this was such a problem that um, in the age of exploration that ship captains and the governments would count on up to 50% of their men dying from scurvy uh, on any given voyage. But today, I mean, it's not like scurvy doesn't exist. It does exist in places like refugee camps or places where people have really, really, really poor diets. But we also have enormous problems with things like vitamin A deficiency, um, which is causing somewhere between 250 and 500,000 kids to go blind each year, and many of whom will die because uh, vitamin A is important for the immune system. And we just don't really recognize that in the United States just because we are fortunate enough to have very easy access to enough vitamins that we don't see this. But these diseases will never really go away because the only way to prevent them is through good food. So another interesting in, in, vitamin, in vitamania, Catherine, is that uh, even though people in America are mostly eating fortified food and a lot of people are taking multivitamins. We still in America are on the borderline of a lot of nutritional deficiencies. Why is that the case? Yeah. I mean, it depends on who you talk to and how you define deficiency, but I think it's a common misperception to think that we are really all well nourished. I was very surprised to find that actually it's po it's quite possible in America to eat a diet that's so devoid of nutrients that you actually could risk a borderline vitamin deficiency, or even in some cases like an actual vitamin deficiency. I think the reason we don't see more of that is because there is a lot of voluntary fortification of our food supply with vitamins. Um, but it's kind of scary to realize that if it weren't for these synthetic vitamins being added to, to our food, whether it's breakfast cereal or milk um, or orange juice or whatever, we actually could be at risk of vitamin deficiencies. I mean, at the flip side, you also have a lot of Americans who are taking so many extra vitamins and dietary supplements that they are potentially getting too much. So you have different categories of people in the States that range from people who are eating such poor diets, they're really at risk of deficiencies to people who are maybe hurting themselves by taking too many of these things. So with, let's split those two topics out and, and talk both about the, the reason why all of these companies are using fortification to their benefit and maybe not to ours. And then we can talk later about the second issue you raised that, that just because a vitamin is good for you doesn't mean that more of a vitamin is good for you. So with, tell us a little bit about the double-edged sword of fortification and, and even multivitamin supplementation and, and why um, – it's masking something uh, around uh, a poor, nutrient-dense diet. You know, one thing I found really interesting in my research was that there is no mandatory fortification of anything in the United States. Um, the flour was briefly required to be enriched with things in the 40s during World War II, but now it's voluntary. You just basically, if you call flour enriched, you have to put vitamins in it, but you can sell non-enriched flour. And what I found interesting is that the, um, the idea of vitamins was so became so appealing to the American public that it became a great mar I mean it is a great marketing term it was made up before any vitamin was actually isolated so food marketers got onto using vitamins to help sell their products and as a result it went from being something that maybe the government would have been required to mandate fortification of you know, like you might have to fortify milk if companies weren't doing it on their own to something that was appealing in a business sense so the government didn't really need to worry about it as much. Um, companies would voluntarily put vitamins into their products. 
one of the reasons they started doing so in the beginning, which is like 1930s, 40s, when it became possible to add synthetic vitamins to foods, is that that was the same time you start to see the real spread of uh, packaged and processed foods that are able to sit on supermarket shelves for a long time and kind of created the modern-day grocery store. When you process a food to make it shelf-stable, which you have to do if you want to have this kind of food system, that takes a lot of the vitamins out. So in order to make sure that their products weren't totally nutritionally empty, companies started putting it back in. But now we've gotten to a point where, first of all, we don't recognize that. So a lot of times you'll see vitamins and assume a product is healthy just because it contains them without looking at the underlying basis for why that those vitamins have been added. But you also see companies using vitamins as a selling tool in ways that are totally unnecessary, um, like it, a lot of the sports drinks or energy bars or things like that that you'll find at the gym where it's above and beyond what we would ever actually need, but it just makes us feel healthier to have lots of vitamins in a product. Well, there's also this disconnect when you often look at epidemiological studies and say uh, people who eat more vitamin C-rich diets tend to have less of certain diseases, for instance. But then when you look at studies on vitamin C as a supplement, you don't see the same health benefits, which I would think would point to that perhaps in the diet there are all sorts of things that go along with vitamin C that we haven't identified that are actually the health-promoting benefits of those foods. I definitely think that that's part of it. You know, if you have vitamin C in an orange, there's a lot of other stuff in the orange besides the vitamin C that may be doing things on their own or they may be working synergistically with the C uh, that are not present when you just take a tablet. And then the other point would be, you know, as you pointed out, I mean, these are all observational studies, so there's a lot of potential for confounding variables. So do people who take vitamin C happen to also go to the gym more often and not smoke and exercise, you know, you go to the gym more often, exercise more, eat a better diet overall? It's really hard with nutrition to tease out the exact factor that's causing these health benefits or problems with health. Um, and that is definitely true with vitamins. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to Catherine Price about her latest book, Vitamania, Our Obsessive Quest for Nutritional Perfection. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about the uh, research around multivitamins and why you're not a proponent of them? Right. Well, you know, I think there, I think there is a place for multivitamins for some people. I'm just not a proponent of the idea that everyone should take them as an insurance policy or that we should stop our questions at the question of whether to take a multivitamin. So basically, no major health organization in the U.S. recommends the routine use of multivitamins for otherwise healthy people. Uh, that's basically because they haven't been shown to cause or, or do much um, beyond what you'd get naturally from food. So there's not really much of an added benefit that we know of from multivitamins. But with that said, there's the qualifier in that sentence that it's people who are healthy who don't need to take vitamins, who are eating a good diet to begin with. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the States who are not eating a good diet, who are eating diets, as we were saying, you know, that's so poor that they're actually not even getting synthetic vitamins from fortified foods. Um, so those people might benefit from a multivitamin supplement. I would argue that it would be better first to, to change your food, to try to find foods that naturally contain vitamins for the reasons we were just talking about, because they probably contain other good stuff. Um, but for those people who aren't going to do that, a multivitamin could help. But it's not, I think we want like an easy blanket answer to whether everybody should be taking one or everybody should not. And that is unfortunately not a question that has one answer. And, and there's certainly certain vitamins and minerals that have more science behind them than others. I think of calcium and vitamin D and iron, for instance, for anemia, that would be uh, slam dunk for most uh, conventional physicians would, would 
want people to be on those for certain conditions. Yeah, and that's an important point that there are also um, specific conditions or lifestyle choices that make supplementation necessary or a good idea. So, yeah, for example, there's a reason that uh, most flour in the United States has added folic acid to it, um, or, or enriched flour is required to have it, and that is to prevent neural tube defects, which is a devastating type of birth defect. Um, which means that, I mean, basically most women of childbearing age, certainly if you're even thinking about becoming pregnant, should consider a folic acid supplement because it's hard to get enough of it from your, to absorb enough of it from your diet and it does do good things. Or if you're a vegan, you likely, or you could have a problem with vitamin B12 because B12 is made in animals' guts um, by bacteria. And so if you're not eating animal products, um, you could be at risk of a B12 deficiency. So there's certainly times and situations where additional supplementation is medically necessary. Well, t- touch a little bit on on why more vitamins isn't a good idea necessarily. So why something that's potentially good for you, doubling or tripling the dose could potentially be harmful for you in certain cases. Yeah, this is one of the strangest things about vitamins because we don't really apply it to more to, to most things in our life. Like in general, you think, okay, I need a certain amount of calories, right, to to fuel my body. But we all know that that does not mean that you should then eat as many calories as you possibly can every single day. That's not going to do good things for your health. But something about vitamins makes us think that if a little bit is necessary for health, then a whole lot must be better. And I think that's an unwise assumption for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that there actually have been proven issues with taking too many of particular or too much of particular vitamins. The fat-soluble ones, which are A, D, E, and K, uh, meaning they dissolve in fat, they stick around in your body a lot longer than the the other vitamins. And so it's possible to build up too too much of those vitamins, um, especially vitamin A, which can be toxic to your liver. But you also have problems where if you take a lot of vitamins, you can throw off other processes in your body. Like you were just saying, vitamin D and calcium are intrinsically linked. You need D to absorb calcium, and you obviously need calcium for healthy bones. So you need a certain amount of vitamin D. But if you take super doses of D over a long period of time, it's possible you could start to absorb too much calcium and end up with deposits elsewhere in your body where you don't want extra calcium, like in your kidneys. So that can be a problem. And then the other issue is just even for the water-soluble ones, which is C and the and the B vitamins, people just say, oh, you'll just pee them out. But yeah, you will eventually, but you really have to saturate your body before you're going to start eliminating um, the vitamins in your urine. And the thing is, we just don't know what the long-term effects of constantly saturating our bodies are with vitamins over long periods of time. And there is some evidence in the case of certain vitamins that could be detrimental. So I personally feel more comfortable trying to stick as closely as possible to amounts of vitamins I could naturally get from my diet. And that goes back to kind of what you hear from Michael Pollan a lot around just going back to sort of traditional ways of eating more nutrient-dense whole foods as an insurance policy in the hope that there is uh, a wisdom in, in those foods that have been passed down culturally through time. Is that somewhere that you, is that a, a perspective you would pres- prescribe to or subscribe to? Yeah, I think that it definitely is a wise way to eat. I mean, as I said, there are certain circumstances where you do need extra vitamins. In that case, they're almost functioning more like drugs or medicines, you could say, because you're correcting a problem. But I do think that that's a wise way to eat. And what I thought was interesting in my my own research to kind of wrap my head around is it sounds like it's such a simplistic way to eat. But if you actually like understand how much we don't understand about nutrition, how much is unknown, 
suddenly the idea of eating this diet of just kind of protective foods becomes much more scientific because you're actually acknowledging all that's uncertain and eating foods that contain the uncertainty, if that makes sense, that, that are the scientific cutting edge, like whatever else is in a carrot, say. But we don't actually need to understand those details in order to reap the benefits of eating these foods. And you even look at some supplement companies that are trying to take that in terms of putting them into pills, where instead of using vitamin D, they would use a vitamin D-rich uh, whole food that they would put in a, in a capsule rather than the vitamin by itself. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of um, activity in kind of whole food supplements and then whole food powders and stuff. That's a new trend I think is coming out. Um, I think that you know it, it it makes sense. I see where they're coming from, but I think as consumers we need to be aware that that's not the best way to get these compounds. In part because we still don't know what else you're missing or destroying if you take a whole food and put it into a pill. Um, but also because actually they're oftentimes very expensive. I think it's. It's interesting when people often say, oh, eating real food is too expensive. I'm just going to take supplements. And if you look at the price tags of some of these whole food powders, people are spending like $100 a month or more on pills, and you can buy an awful lot of produce for that amount of money. So I, I would recommend, again, whenever possible, avoiding the pills unless they're medically necessary. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wonder if, if when they're saying it's too expensive, of course, sometimes it probably is, but sometimes it may just be really uh them saying in another way that they're not in, in a place where they're willing to cook. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, and you could say it could be too expensive for someone to buy the pills and too expensive to buy the vegetables. It just could be out of their budget regardless. But there also are a lot of people who find the room for the pills, but then wouldn't do the foods. And I don't know if that's just partially, we just don't, we don't think about, I don't know. It, it's so much nicer to think you could just get all the answers from a pill. And in some way we value that more, and diets, so we put a different priority on it. And my takeaway from that is just that nutrition is so complicated, and there are no magic answers, and there is no magic pill. Um, I mean, frankly, we're all going to get sick at some point and die anyway, regardless of what we do. But in the meantime, I keep coming back to the idea the best thing I can do is to try to get as many nutrients as I can as possible from foods that naturally contain them. I wanted to ask you about your section on the lack of regulation around dietary supplements, which, which granted is a wild west of, uh, of poor regulation uh, by any accounts. But one of the things that I had trouble following you about and I wanted, to, I wanted to, uh, to hear your thoughts on was holding up the pharmaceutical industry's regulation as a great example for the world for both safety and efficacy. Because we've had a lot of guests on Health Watch before talking about actually quite the opposite. And I think of, for instance, the study from Harvard and the University of Toronto that looked at 500 clinical trials and found that if a study was funded by industry, 85% of the time it would be favorable to the industry. And if it was funded by government, it would be 50%, which seems like a large difference. And similarly, like in that same study, when they looked at just 200 statin medications, I mean, 200 statin studies, there was a 20-fold difference in terms of favorability and results. And that's not even going into off-label prescribing or the fact that 30% of studies aren't published, and a lot of those are not published because of the poor results that are going to go towards industry. So what are your thoughts on corporate capitalism and the fact that a lot of these studies are really uh, funded not by uh, neutral scientific organizations? 
Well, yeah, that's a that's a big topic and a really interesting one. I mean, I would completely agree with you that the pharmaceutical industry is nowhere. They're not angels, and America is, uh, I would argue, over-medicated, both in terms of drugs and supplements. Um, so, yeah, totally with you on that. And it's kind of horrifying when you realize how much of an influence uh, – the pharmaceutical, I mean, basically the business interest would have on getting particular things published and also the pressure researchers feel to put things out there that look good. I think what I would say, though, in terms of the supplements is not that I would argue that dietary supplements should be regulated like prescription drugs. I don't actually know the precise answer, perfect answer for how we should regulate these things. But what I will say is that in the United States, dietary supplements aren't required to have those studies done to begin with. You don't have to test a supplement for safety or for efficacy before you sell it. So you don't even have the question of bias because no one is doing the studies. And to me as a consumer, that is really concerning. I mean, I'd rather have a situation where you have tons of studies and maybe many of them are biased or maybe there's lots of problems with them, but someone is actually doing the study than the situation here where I could come up with a supplement tomorrow and sell it to you right. and not have to do any research. So that's really what worries me. And as a consumer, what I'd like to see, again, I don't know the perfect regulatory path towards this, but what I'd really like is just to have some assurance that if I take a dietary supplement, it's not going to hurt me, it is going to do what it says on the label, and that it contains what it says it has on the label. And, you know, I think about something like an over-the-counter drug like Tylenol, there are problems with adulteration with um, over-the-counter drugs. I'm not saying that's perfect either, but for the most part, I can be pretty confident it'll get rid of my headache and it's not going to hurt me in the dose prescribed on the label. Or the example that I think is particularly striking to me is the fact if you look at some products like antiperspirant deodorant or, anti, or like anti-dandruff shampoo, things we don't really think about as drugs, if you look on the back of those labels, it actually says drug facts. And there's a requirement, not that they go through like extensive tests every time you want to launch like a mouthwash, but that the manufacturers are able to cite research or, or match, a, they call them monographs, like sets of rules that define what is mouthwash, what does it do, how do we know it's safe before they sell it. So it's a much lower standard than like a pharmaceutical drug, but it still assures you that the mouthwash is safe, and that doesn't exist for supplements either. So all that's to say that like, I think you bring up really good points, but I'm just, there's nothing protecting me from dietary supplements, and that really freaks me out. That, that's a very good point and well taken. It is interesting, though, however, that that you see, like, the way in which the conventional medical community, say, would look at herbs, they it is the way you would expect a trade organization to look at them in the sense that they do nothing beneficial or if they do something beneficial, it's extremely weak. But somehow they're also extremely powerful and interfere with everything else that you're doing. And if, and it's a very non-nuanced approach or non-herbal specific approach. It feels kind of like uh, a convenient uh, meme to repeat that they're going to interfere with all of your drugs and they're not going to do anything good. And there is a lot of research on a lot of these in France and Germany and England that is double-blind placebo. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I would say that you bring up a really good point about how people think about herbs and, and vitamins in general is that as consumers, we tend to think kind of the opposite, that they're either going to be doing good things or or nothing. And both those views are wrong because the whole reason we would take a, an herb is to do something, right? So, And if it's doing something, it can have side effects. Will they always be 
side effects that are worse than the alternative, or will they always interact with our medications in a bad way? No, I don't think so, but they could. Sure. So again, I would say I just want to have more of a sense that, I mean, herbs in particular, they can be very problematic in, in the sense that people put stuff in the herbs that aren't actually herbs. I, I mean, I interviewed an analytical chemist who was looking at a Chinese herbal, supple, herbal sexual enhancement supplement, and he cracked open a vial or a, a capsule and a piece of Viagra fell out. It's like an actual Viagra, and that just stuck in my mind because it's like, wait, that's just a totally different ball game. If you, it's one thing to ask whether that herb would have helped whatever the person was taking. Well, I guess they were taking it for sexual enhancement, whether it would have worked. But if you've got a situation where it's possible that your herb actually has a prescription drug in it, like that, just is. I don't know, mind-boggling. It really upset me. And that's not uncommon in China, actually. I know that there was a prostate cancer herbal formula that ended up having chemotherapy in it as well. Right, and that's what's really scary. It's like you want to know that stuff is there. Right. I mean, the other thing I would say, just I do think we tend to have a perception um, that it's like kind of big pharma versus like tiny organic farmers making these herbs. Um, again, I have plenty of complaints about big pharma, but the, the supplement industry in the United States is actually a $36 billion a year business. And I mean, it's enormous. So it's, it's very much an industry itself. So I came away from this thinking, wow, we, we have all these very justified questions and critiques of big pharma, but what about big supplements? Because they have actually literally written the laws that have been passed by Congress that prevent the FDA from having to test these things for safety or efficacy. And they did it in the name of consumer freedom. But as a consumer, I don't really feel that free if I can't even tell if a bottle has what it says it has. So yeah. it's all very, I don't know, I also found it very interesting to kind of rethink the way I thought about some of these things beforehand. Well, I definitely think everybody would be behind knowing a certain level of reliability that what you're going to get in the bottle is, is actually the thing and nothing else. Right. And then you can have the freedom to choose to take that. Right. Of course. So what, what were, where would you point listeners to, Catherine, in terms of people who maybe have been relying on nutritional uh, vitamin supplementation but want to move more towards a healthy diet? Are there certain uh, diet books or cookbook books that you particularly like that you would point people towards? You know, I think we make it too complicated. I mean, I, I, I studied with Michael Pollan, and I think his advice to just eat real, you know, eat food, mostly plants, not too much, is a great seven words or whatever of advice, and that just following that will get us a very long way. Um, yeah, because, I mean, you could spend a lot of money on diet books, but, again, you could take that, take that money and just make a salad with it. So my advice would basically <laughs> be to try to base your diet around foods that naturally contain nutrients. And, and when you're talking about vitamins, that would be, you know, the things you know you should be eating, like colorful vegetables or dark leafy greens, minimally processed meats, fish. I mean, I personally eat plenty of dairy, partially because I have type 1 diabetes. But basically, try to avoid refined and processed products. Like, that's, that's the stuff that's been really proven to have a bad effect on your health. And if you can just do whatever you can to le tilt your diet in that other direction, you'll be doing good things for your health, and you don't need to stress out about it so much. And yet the reason why I thought of the cookbook was because I think a lot of these foods, is even though the advice seems simple at the beginning, a lot of these foods people aren't used to cooking anymore. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, if you want to get like Deborah Madison has a lot of really great vegetarian cookbooks um, if you want to do that. I mean, basically, I, I don't know. I think you could go to the cookbook store and like just browse and see what looks good because really anything you're cooking is probably going to be better for you. And the other thing I would caution people against is getting um, 
getting kind of duped by food manufacturers when they add one particular dietary ingredient and try to make it seem healthy. This originally happened with vitamins where you'd, I think we were talking about before, you'd have like vitamin enriched something like a, like a donut or something, and then it's sold as healthy, but it's actually still a donut. But I just got back from a huge um, uh, natural food industry trade show this weekend in which there was a huge, huge exhibition hall of thousands and thousands and thousands of supposedly healthy foods. And now the things that are being put in are like chia seeds or like hemp or, um, right. I don't know, there were lots of like all nut butter. I'm fine with nut butter. Yeah, all these superfoods. And just be aware that adding chia seeds to a muffin doesn't change the fact that it's a muffin. I think it's very easy for us to get um, so interested in the super element that we forget to actually evaluate the underlying food. Well, thanks for coming on Health Watch today, Catherine. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We're talking today to Catherine Price, author of Vitamania, Our Obsessive Quest for Nutritional Perfection. I'm Dr. David Naming, your host. This is Health Watch. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.